This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, winners? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 24th, 2018. I, of course, am Patrick Moran, and I'll tell you what, I come on this twice every week, and I tell you we have a good show for you, and it's true, not because of me really, not because of me really at all, but I've been able to have some amazing guests during this Moranalytics podcast run already, mainly from the world of sports media, including guys on the national scene like Richard Deitch, Adam Kaplan. Ross Tucker, Tyler Dunn, and others, as well as, you know, a lot of guys on the local Buffalo media scene where the basis of the show is stemmed from. Guys like Tim Graham and Sal Capaccio, Mike Harrington, Jay Skursky, and many more like that. Today, today, however, is definitely the highlight of the Moranalytics podcast with a guest that's going to be hard for me to ever top. I'll be joined by ESPN's Adam Schefter, the undisputed champ of NFL insiders. We talk about his career path, and I think you'll learn pretty quickly that Adam Schefter may have become one of the most recognizable sports names in sports media in the world, but Adam Schefter is not a prodigy who was destined for journalistic greatness and fame from the very beginning. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his 16 years working in Denver, his time at the NFL Network, and the reason why he ended up at ESPN, which, by the way, was an all-time ball drop by the NFL Network. We talk about his life as an insider, balancing respect and competition among his peers. And of course, we talk at least a little bit about Buffalo Bills football. I absolutely couldn't resist that opportunity. Speaking of the Buffalo Bills, immediately after Adam, I have on Ryan Talbot from NewYorkUpstate.com. We talk a little Richie Incognito unretiring and if he fractured his legacy in Buffalo, given the way things played out over the past couple months. We also talk about upcoming OTAs and Ryan tells us what positions he's most locked into going into OTAs, minicamp, and training camp this summer. So boys and girls, like I said, this is a good show. This podcast has arrived. So on that note, I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Here's my interview with ESPN's Adam Schefter, followed by some Bills talk 
with Ryan Talbot. Okay, guys, I'll keep this part short and sweet. If you're a sports fan, this man really, and I mean really, needs no introduction. My guest today is King of the NFL Insiders, Adam Schefter. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. Let's start here. Let's talk about growing up. You grew up in Belmore, New York, which is in like Nassau County. What team or teams were you a fan of growing up as a kid there? And did you have a couple favorite athletes? Well, yeah, I loved all sports growing up. I loved, at the time, the New York Islanders were in their heyday, and I loved Brian Trottier and Mike Bossy and Clark Gillies and Dennis Poffin, even though the Rangers fans didn't. So I loved them. I loved the Knicks growing up. The Yankees, I would watch every game, every single game growing up. And I really liked the Jets growing up. But I will say this, as you get older in life and as you make this your profession, you, you really lose that fan interest, I would say, in college, as hard as it is for that to believe. And I know people can't believe that. They, they always say, who do you root for? I root for, first and foremost, the people that I respect and like and the most. That's who I root for. And then I root for my fancy teams. <laughs> those, are the, those are the other people I root for. And I, I, you, you really don't have, after, you know, I've been in the business since 1990, you don't have favorite teams. They're all your favorite teams. You know, you, you, you wish for good things for, for everybody. And, and there's, you know, that's just how it works. You really don't have any favorites, but growing up as a little boy in Nassau County, New York, those were my favorites. Yes. As a lot of people know, you ended up going to college at Michigan. Firstly, Mm -hmm. what made you decide to go to Michigan? And secondly, were there other schools that you considered at that time? Yeah, I, I wanted to go to Penn and I didn't get in. I got rejected. (laughs) I wanted to go to Tufts. And I got rejected. Um, so really my top two choices at the time were schools I didn't get into. And at that time, my cousin, who was a year older than me, he had gone to Michigan. And yeah, I, I, I was looking for a school. It's funny now to think about it that, that had rah-rah spirit and great academics and all the things that Michigan does. And when I enrolled as a freshman in the fall of 1985, the school was not nearly as popular popular then as it is today. Right. Uh, it, it just, you know, I, I, I know there are a bunch of kids in my neighborhood who are applying and there are people with much better grades and test scores than I had who, who aren't getting in. And when I applied, it wasn't as tough to get into. It wasn't as popular back then. And this year they had 71,000 applicants, a record 71,000. Wow. I don't know how many they had the year I applied, but I promise you it wasn't 71,000. <laughs> So I, I was fortunate enough to eat gone in and get one of those slots. And, you know, I, I went there because I thought it would be a great academic institution with great athletics and combine all those things and was far enough away from home, yet close enough that you could get back a, in an instant. And right. basically went there for all those reasons and, and discovered plenty more while I was there. Now, you know, a younger generation of fans, I'm talking about real young fans, might not even know this, but you know, your craft, long before you were known for breaking NFL news on a daily basis, was that as a journalist. You were an editor at the Michigan Daily, the college newspaper. What was that experience like for you? As you know, you began to cut your teeth in the world of journalism. Well, again, it was it was something that was accidental, just like uh, Michigan wasn't my first choice of schools initially. Uh, going to work for the student newspaper was something that just sort of happened along the way. I wanted to be in a fraternity and there were about 50 guys going for 10 spots and I didn't get in. 
So I went down to the basketball office to see if they needed somebody to pick up jock straps and hand out water bottles, and they didn't. So I went to the basketball office to see if they needed somebody to pick up jock straps and hand out water bottles, and they didn't. And I've always been the kind of guy that always liked to be busy. So I'm like, well, no fraternity, no football team, no basketball team. What, what can I do? And I said, you know what? Let me try the student newspaper. That, at that point, really was the fourth or fifth option for me. And it was born out of desperation and rejection as much as anything else. So I went down there, started working there, and grew to really love what I was doing there as a newspaper reporter. And it was only you know midway through my college career at Michigan that I recognized, wow, maybe I could try to do this for a living. I, I really didn't think I was good enough or talented enough, or I always thought that these were jobs that other people did. And, you know, as crazy as it sounds, you know, nobody said to me when you're younger, you, you could do anything you want to do. I, I just thought that I'd, you know, go to law school or be a salesman or do something like that that was very well regarded and respected and just try to work hard. You know, I thought sports was something that was was beyond me, too good for me, not attainable. And so I just started working for the student newspaper. One thing led to another. I was applying for newspaper jobs. My senior year of college couldn't get one. Hundreds of rejection letters, hundreds, no joke. So when I couldn't get into a newspaper and start off at an entry-level job, I went to graduate school uh, at Northwestern for one year and got my master's in journalism. And while I was there, I was working for the Chicago Tribune on the side. And that was an unbelievable experience. And again, kept looking for a job for two full years and finally got an offer from the Los Angeles Times covering high school sports in the Valley. So it was like a part-time job. And I went out celebrating New York City uh, because it had been such a long time coming. And after I got back from doing that, uh, there was a message on my pillow from my mother that I could still see to this day uh, that Barry Forbes, the sports editor at the Rocky Mountain News, had called to offer me a job or at least bring me out for an interview and so I called him the very next morning and he wanted to know how fast I could get out there for an interview and I knew I wasn't calling just to make small talk because I had looked for a job for two years and nobody even called right. nobody nobody so the fact that he was calling told me something was different so that morning I flew out to Denver he offered me a job I decided to pick Denver over LA because they were going to let me cover the Broncos and the University of Colorado and moved out to Denver in September 1990, not really knowing anybody, anything, um, just determined to make my way in the field of sports reporting. That's That was going to be my next question. So you went up in Denver in 1990. At that time, did you ever even begin with vision, you know, what your future would turn out to be back all the way back in 1990? You mean like what I'm doing today? Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, what I'm doing today would be so far beyond anything I ever could have imagined for myself. I was perfectly content and thrilled to be the Denver Broncos newspaper reporter and NFL reporter for the Rocky Mountain News and then the Denver Post. And I did that job for almost 16 years. And it was at that time, and it still might be today, the longest continuous stretch of time that anyone had ever covered, that anyone had ever covered the um, Denver Broncos. I was the Vic Carucci of, of the Denver football world. <laughs> And, and I loved it. And I really, you know, I'm not going to say I didn't have any designs to ever leave it. But again, if I had done that my entire career, I, I would have been perfectly fine with that and had no issues. And so I did it for almost 16 years, loved every minute of it. 
Uh, they pay me to cover the Broncos NFL while they won two Super Bowls, but in essence, they're really training me how to handle an NFL locker room and learn the rhythms of an NFL season and get to understand what it takes to cover a team in this day and age. Well, you talked about as you get older, you start to lose that fandom when you get into the line of work that you did. And I'm talking about as a writer, before you even became an insider, when you first became a writer covering a professional team, was it a little bit intimidating at first? Did you have to overcome, yeah. you know, a little bit intimidating being in NFL locker rooms and dealing with players, you know, that you grew up watching or, you know, that you were in college and they became stars. Was that a little bit of an adjustment for you having to, you know, overcome being intimidated a little bit? Well, 100%. I mean, you know, you're going out there and you're uh, talking to John Elway and uh, who's a superstar at the time. And, there's no doubt that it's a huge adjustment. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's only natural. I think that, you know, you're, you're 22, 23 years old and you're starting out and, you know, you don't know very much. And, you know, you, you know, it's funny now, you know, I, I don't think there's a person in the NFL world that you'd be unnerved by talking to, you know, you, you've had the great fortune and honor of meeting interviewing, being around, uh, so many people in this great profession. And back then it's also new. Like you've seen these guys on TV, you've read about them in the newspaper and, and yeah, it it was, it was unnerving. Like I look at young people today, uh, coming out, people that I've met with back at Michigan at the Michigan daily, the first college newspaper that I ever worked for the, the things that they do are so much greater and so much better than anything that I ever did when I was that age. Like I was, I was green beyond green. Like I was throw up green <laughs> and, 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 uh, these people today, they come out so much more advanced and sophisticated and knowledgeable than I ever was. I, you know, I just think that the next generation is doing so much better. They're doing much better work than I ever could have hoped to have done at that age. And it's very impressive. And, and again, you know, it's just another example of, uh, looking into some of these things by, um, not doing much more than really just working hard and caring a whole lot about what you do. So in 2004, you joined the NFL network while also writing for NFL.com. Not long after that is when you started to really make a name for yourself in the mainstream. I mean, you made a name for yourself covering the Broncos long before, you know, but that was Denver fans. I'm talking mainstream America. I don't know. It feels like there's a path to media starting for you that happened overnight. Well, I never viewed it as becoming a huge media star on NFL Network. All I viewed it as doing was literally doing my job every day. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, invoke the Patriot way on, on Buffalo fans or anything like that. But, I mean, that's that's all I was trying to do. Um, that's all I try to do to this day is back then, again, uh, I loved covering the Broncos and the NFL for the Denver newspapers that I did for 16 years. And I, and I never viewed it like, boy, I'm, I'm really starting to make inroads here and and uh, this is going to be the makings of, you know, some sort of star-studded career. Now that I'm in TV on NFL Network, now I've made, I, I've never I've never felt like that. And I'm really grateful that I basically got to cut my teeth and grow up professionally in the field of newspapers, not being treated on TV. They they call the on-air people the talent, mm-hmm. you know. And and and, and you know, I, I was never called the talent, you know, until you know I was 40 years old you know, 30, 38, 39, 40 years old. And I'm really grateful for that too, because, you know, that, that, that that's probably not really good for uh, somebody's ego uh, at that time uh, when you're very young to be told, 
you know, you have a talent to have people uh, looking after you the way that uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to have in the field of television sometimes, um, you know, giving you schedules and, and uh, you know, picking up a sandwich where you have to draft all day. So these are things that, you know, would never happen in the newspaper world where you're transcribing tape, you know, around the clock and writing stories and picking up ideas and traveling early morning flights. I love that. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was my world. So when you say, you know, media star, you know, whatever that is, I, 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 I could truly say to you, I've never once stopped to think about it that way. Being a writer by trade, was it a difficult process getting used to being in front of the camera for TV? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Patrick. I would say this to you, that when I was in Denver and I moved there, I was 23. And again, typical of me always wanting to be busy. Right when I got started on the Broncos beat, Channel 4 at the time, which was at the time, I think it was a CBS affiliate. Um, they, you know, they, they don't want to pay anybody. And I would have done work. I would have paid people to do work. And right. So they say, hey, you, you want to do a segment on the weekends? Like, come on TV to talk about the Broncos? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I thought, wow, how cool is this? You know, you get to go on TV. I mean, I never, ever thought that it would be something that I would try to do for a living. So on weekends, you know, for the first, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, I would go and do a segment where I would talk to the host and answer questions. And they would give me like a $50 gift certificate to the Burger King or a hundred dollars gift certificate to the men's shop where I could go afford to buy a sport coat that I couldn't afford on my own. Hmm. And, and so, um, to me, I couldn't believe that they would give me anything to train me. And I didn't get much TV training, but there was a taste of it enough. So that when the NFL network did call in 2004 and offer me a job that I had enough of a base of knowledge to be able to go out and not embarrass myself. So again, it was just accidental. If I had been in New York and been in an area where I was from and knew people, um, maybe I wouldn't have sought out that work on the weekends, but because I was in an area where I didn't know anybody and I, and, and, and I was just looking to try to do things to get ahead. I said, let me do some TV work on the side. And that's what I did. I did some TV work, not very much, but enough to, to, begin to wet my feet so that I would not completely embarrass myself once I did get the opportunity to do more television. Was there a particular scope you had where you first realized that you're about to become a major player in the NFL insider game? Yeah, you keep referring to it that way. Like, you know, there's major player, major star. Big, I, I, again, I just never have thought about it like that. Okay, you know? let's scratch the major player part out then. And, yeah. and let's just talk about if there's a particular scoop where you realize, you know, you're first about to join that class of other known NFL insiders. Patrick, it's just, it's just, it was not the way that I thought, you know, and there's nothing that I look back on and say, boy, this is the story in which I really arrived. I, again, I, I, I just view it as, you know, I've done this for 28 years now and there were a lot of years with a lot of early mornings and late nights and, 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 you know, I'm very proud of it. I wouldn't trade for anything, but I, I, I view that, uh, those early mornings and late nights more than I do one story that, that helped me arrive on the national insider scene. What led to you going to ESPN in the summer of 2009? Well, that, that also, uh, was another thing that wasn't planned at all. And my contract was coming up at NFL network and, uh, it was very disappointing 
at that point in time, the way that the negotiations went, because it really wasn't any negotiation. It was a, a situation where they, they, they made an offer. Um, they never budged off at one cent. When, when I declined to accept the offer, they pulled me off the air. And when they pulled me off the air and essentially made me a free agent, um, I really had no idea what I was going to do at that point in time. Uh, I was wondering where my next work stop would be. And ESPN came in and fortunately offered me an opportunity. Now, when I took the job with ESPN, I look back on it and shows you how naive I was. I took the job not knowing what I was going to be doing for ESPN at the time. They never described to me what I would be doing. I took the job in 2009. They launched the 9 a.m. Sports Center that August. So I got the job, and right after I accepted the job, about, I don't know, two, three weeks later, the man that I basically give the most credit for hiring me, Seth Markman, he we were talking, and he, and he goes, well, how do you feel about doing Sunday Countdown? I go, what do you mean Sunday Countdown? He goes, you're going to be doing Sunday Countdown with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson and, and Mike Ditka and Chris Mortensen. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm doing Sunday countdown. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, oh my God. Like I, you know, I, I love that show. I love those people. I have such great respect for what they did. Always watch the show every Sunday. And to think that I was now going to be doing anything on that show, you know, even if it meant getting those guys coffee, I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, again, when I took the job, had no idea that's what it would be. And who takes a job in this day and age, not knowing what they're going to be doing, but I did shows you how dumb I was. <laughs> And, and, and it just sort of went the way that it did. I ask every writer and reporter I have on my podcast, the same question, you know, through the years, you develop a lot of friendships among peers Mm -hmm. that you work with. And I'm sure some rivalries too, from, you know, other networks, other stations, things like that. On one hand, you're friends with some of these guys and girls. And on the other hand, you always want to be the one who breaks that big scoop. Is it a little difficult sometimes to navigate like that line in the sand between, you know, friendship and colleagues and trying to beat someone's brains. And basically, you know, every time when it comes to breaking a story, because they could probably, I would imagine it's a pretty cutthroat business. I think all businesses are cutthroat. I mean, I think whether you're trying to sell insurance or build houses or sell stocks, everybody's competing for business. Everybody Uh, saying that I, I think that there are some longtime people in our business that I have tremendous respect for, for the way they've done it. The, amount of time that they put in, like, you know, I, I've got an unbelievable relationship. Chris Morrison, I consider an older brother. Mm-hmm. You know, I, lo- I love him like a brother. He, he's been um, incredible to be around, to learn under, to work with. And, and I love Mort. Like, he, I mean, he's family to me. He knows, you know, my personal life. I know his personal life. He knows what it's like to do this job better than anybody out there. I know what it's like to do his job as well as anybody out there. And, and I've got a great, healthy respect for him. And same is true of Peter King, uh, who's done the job, you know, as long as I can remember. And, you know, I used to be a stringer for him back when I was in Denver in the mid-1990s. I was one of his 32 stringers. And then he promoted me to one of his, what they called core stringers for Sports Illustrated for years, where you would be one of his four or five trusted NFL reporters that would file information to him on a weekly basis to help him with his notes column. Mm. Um, and that, and that was unbelievable you know, getting to know Peter and Peter becoming a truly great friend to where, you know, when he was having his 50th birthday party, he invited me and I invited him, um, to mine. And, you know, he's been a great, great friend for a long time. Peter is, and he's a great human being. 
And uh, I, I've even developed a really nice relationship with Jay Glazer, who who I've been a competitor with for a long time because, you know, he and I have worked at this as long as we have, where he's done this. Um, I, I could say I could I could brag and say I've done a little longer than he is, I believe, because I started covering this in 1990, and, and I think he was like the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. But but both of us came from nothing in the newspaper world. So uh, I, I guarantee if you had him on, he'd say the same thing. But I, I, I've got a lot of respect and admiration for everything that he's done uh, throughout his career uh, and the amount of time that he has served the business. And so, you know, am, am I competing with them for news? Yes. But do I have great respect for what they've done and who they are? Absolutely. Who would you consider your biggest influences professionally as you rose up the ranks? Well, when I was back in Michigan, there were two men who were instrumental to me um, coming up. One would be Thomas George, who worked for the Free Press, went to the New York Times, went to NFL Network, went to the Denver Post, uh, done some work for Super Bowl Nation, and just a very thoughtful, classy guy who first influenced me to be able to go into the business. Again, I said to you that I never knew that people made a living. And when I was covering the Michigan basketball team back in 1987, he was the one when I was flying to Minnesota one time that said to me, you could do this for a living if you'd like. And I'm like, really? And he said, yeah. And so that helped convince me that, wow, maybe I can do this for a living, make it real life. And and that wouldn't have happened without Thomas George. And while I was in college, uh, I was a research assistant for Mitch Album while he was doing his first two books, one on Bo Schembechler, the next on the Fab Five at Michigan. And I used to read Mitch's writings back then and be in complete awe. Like I couldn't believe that anybody could write anything that good. And, you know, I tried to write like him in college. And when he asked me to help him out and do my little things for him, I, it was, uh, again, I would have paid him to be able to do that. And right. I like to tell people, I, I like to tell people to this day that, um, you know, I helped him on the bowl book, I helped him on the fab five. And you see, the first time that he didn't use me on a book was Tuesdays with Maury. So you see how instrumental my contributions were to his success. <laughs> Going back to ESPN real quick, I'm sure there's one or two people in particular that you have a closest relationship. I, I mean, I'm sure you got a ton of friends at ESPN, but is there one or two guys that you have to, you would probably consider having the closest relationship with there? You know, I'm fortunate that I get to work with so many great people, really. I mean, more it's like a brother. You know, and uh, I'm very close with him. Um, but you know, all the people that we work with on Sundays, uh, I, I love the guys that we used to work with, Chris Berman and Tom Jackson and Key and Chris Carter and Mike Dicka. Like we, we had a great time, and, and I, I love the current guys too. We have a great time together as well. Uh, Matt Hasselback and Randy Moss and Charles Woodson, Rex Ryan. Um, it, it you know, it's just. Like anybody who spends time together, you, you, you know, you just have a good time with these guys and, and you do the show on Sunday and everybody goes through it together. And then we go together after the show to um, what we call the war room and watch all the games together. And so when, when you're spending that much time with people and, and there are a lot of great producers, I, you know, I love the producers so much, too, mm-hmm. um, because, again, you know, I don't think of myself as a talent. I think of myself as a regular guy and and and. and they're all the regular people that, you know, that I've always thought of myself as. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I identify more with them than people who come from star backgrounds. 
But before moving on, I, I wanted to let you know that I had Adam Kaplan on the podcast last week, and he credited you for recommending him for a job at ESPN. Gave you a lot of props for that. Just want to let you well, know. Yeah, well, you know, listen, uh, there have been a lot of people that have been very gracious to me uh, and helped me throughout my career, and uh, it's an honor to be able to do that for other people as well. All right, now you're known for breaking news. I might be breaking something to you here. I don't know if you know this, but did you ever know that you are indirectly responsible for the birth of the name Bills Mafia? <laughs> uh, does that tie to Stevie Johnson? Yes, I can agree. I'll give you the short version if you want. I, I interviewed a guy recently, you know, the, the founder of Bills Mafia on a podcast. And this is the story that he tells me. Back in 2010, Stevie Johnson dropped that pass, you know, and he tweeted out blaming. Against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep, yep. He essentially blamed God, you know, questioned God, whatever you want to call it. You must have been busy that one day or something because you didn't get around to retweeting it until the next day. And mm-hmm. back in that time, like in 2010, when you retweet something, like nowadays, if you retweet something, it don't matter on your timeline. A million people can retweet it. It's only going to show up once. But back in the day, every time someone retweeted it, it would show up. And because, you know, you have so many Twitter followers, you retweeted it that next day. And like, I don't know, thousands of people were retweeting you. So it kept going on and on and on and on. So a couple Bills fans, and this is the story they tell me, started messing with you a little bit. They started trolling you. Have fun, but you know, they were being trolls at the end of the day. And because it was considered old news, because it was the day before they had a hashtag called Schefter Breaking News, and they would say a couple stupid things on purpose, probably just to get under your skin, which they did because you ended up blocking a couple of them. So they ended up saying they they were talking amongst each other and they said, you know what? We're like a mafia. We're the Bills Mafia. Tweeted it out once, and that's how the birth of Bills Mafia came out. Because of you. So Adam Schefter helped create those mafia per sources, correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it well, did. You know, I, I remember that. And, and uh, you know, and I think that's one of the, the, the uh, tough parts of Twitter, social media. Like, you know, I really don't live on there, you know, right. and sometimes I, I don't check things and, and I'll post like I'll have somebody that, uh, you know, someone at ESPN, they'll, they'll call me like, hey, you know, you, you post that news like. That, that was out there like two hours ago. I'm like, it was like, I, I, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, I, I don't have any alert set. I have no idea what's going out there and I'm just doing again, the best job I can to try to keep up with. So when I saw that Stevie Johnson thing the next day, yeah, that day, I definitely missed it. Definitely didn't see it. Saw it the next day. I was like, wow, look at this. So you put it out there, <laughs> right? Obviously it, it incurred the wrath of Buffalo Bill's kingdom. <laughs> and, uh, and, and help give birth to the Bills Mafia that exists today and uh, runs rampant in Orchard Park and the surrounding parts. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, they meant it affectionately. You know what I mean? They credit yeah. you for, for the term. And then guys like Nick Barnett and Stevie Johnson and like Sean Marion signed, and they started using that tag. And that's where it became, you know, took off. And now today, everyone's known as Bills Mafia everything. But yeah, you're the one who gave birth to Bill's Mafia. So you could take pride in all well, your career that, accomplishments. I, 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 will, I will put that down uh, on my list of accomplishments for my career as something that I will be very proud of. <laughs> all right, I got another Bill's question for you. This is a little more on the serious side here. So from the Doug Marone bolting to the Rex Ryan era, and, you know, finally Sean McDermott, not to mention the recent stuff with Russ Brandon. It's been an interesting handful of years for the Buffalo Bills organizationally since Terry Bagula became owner. Based on what you hear, what you know, what's the league perception of the Bagulas as NFL owners? Well, 
listen, listen. You're, you're judged by wins and losses, right? And they went to the playoffs last year for the first time in a long time. So that obviously um, is a feather in their cap. But you know, I, I think that they just have the right people. Okay, Sean McDermott does things the right way. Brandon Bean does things the right way. These guys are classy, and they're smart, and they work hard. And you root for people like that. So, again, I think that, you know, the people that the Pagulas hire, that's an extension of them. And they, they've got some really excellent people in place. And as long as they keep winning, it'll reflect positively on them. And if they don't, it won't. Were you a little surprised that the Bills drafted Josh Allen? Not in the slightest. No. No. You know, I had people a year before the draft telling me, swearing to me that he'd be the number one overall pick in the draft, that he was the most talented quarterback. And I think obviously oh, wow. he fell back some due to his uh, accuracy, his completion rate being as low as it was at 56%. But people that I know and trust revered the guy, loved the guy and thought he'd be the number one overall pick. And, you know, again, even when on the morning of the draft, that story surfaced about, racist tweets that he had put out in high school that somebody uh, found and uncovered and exposed him in that regard. I remember going on TV that morning saying, I don't believe it's going to impact his draft stock because there were enough teams that were enamored enough with him that needed a quarterback badly enough that they still were going to make a move for him. And that's exactly what happened. So it didn't surprise me. Frankly, I'm a little surprised he went as high as he did, as low as he did, seven. I thought he might go higher than that. So I think the Bills basically got a bargain. They didn't have to surrender an extra first-round pick to move up to get him. And, you know, I think that Josh Allen has the chance, and we'll see how it plays out, but he's got the chance to be a really good quarterback in this league for a really long period of time. One more Bills item, then we'll move on to a couple things before we wrap up here. As I said before, the Rex Ryan era on the field, it didn't work out. But we all know Rex's personality. We see it every week on ESPN. What's he like at ESPN? He's exactly what you see. I mean, that's just... You, you can't be different on TV or, or in press conferences than you are in real life. He's, he's honest, he's candid, he's raw, he's brass, crass, whatever the words are, and, you know, he, he, and he knows football. So, you know, Rex is a pleasure to be around. You had a cameo in the remake of The Longest Yard in 2005. What was that experience like? <laughs> that, you know, well, I, you know, I, I look at that photo in the press box and, and I see some people like Brian Burwell, uh, who are not alive today. Um, and, um, again, these are, these are the moments that you, you, you think back on. I, I think back on those things as much as any story. And I say, I got to work with some great people back then. And it was a big thrill to, you know, be in that movie with Adam Sandler and Jack Jarrett. I'll tell you a funny story where, um, they flew us all out for the premiere and we're walking the red carpet and you know, the, the PR director for the Hollywood company, Chip Namius, coordinated that. He had been in the NFL with the Houston Oilers and went to work in Hollywood. So he recruited some football writers like me and Peter King and John McClain and Jay Glazer, uh, Larry Weissman, to go sit in the press box. And they fly us out to uh, L.A. for the premiere and walk in the red carpet. And, and I had gone to work for the NFL Network shortly. What, what, what year was that? Do you, do you have the year 2006, you said? 2005. Five. Right, so I went, to work, I went to work for NFL Network in four, 2004. So we get out, I'm walking in the red carpet, and I hear everybody yelling, Adam, Adam, Adam. And I was shocked like that, that so many people 
would be watching NFL Network at that time. Like, I couldn't believe it. And then I turned around and realized that Adam Sandler was right behind me, and nobody was yelling at me. They were yelling at Adam Sandler. <laughs> That's funny. When it's the start of NFL free agency or maybe really close to the draft, how much on average do you sleep? It seems like you never sleep. You know, I, I, I tell people, I sleep, but I sleep in bursts. That's just, you know, just what my body has gotten used to over time. I'll sleep two hours here or three hours there or one hour here, you know, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, two kids, four dogs, uh, type one diabetic wife, you know, last night, my wife you know, got up at two in the morning, her sugars were low. Um, she had to go take care of that. And, and, you know, I stayed up and make sure she's okay. And, and so, I, you know, I went to bed at 1130, we're up at one thirty, two hours. We we're up till about four. I had to get up at five to come to ESPN. So I slept an hour there. So it was about three hours spread over the course of the night. And it's just, you know, it's just sort of the life that we have when we're younger and in high school or college, you have fewer concerns and less responsibilities. And I, you know, I, I would imagine there's a lot of people that wake up at night uh, and sleep in bursts and have their own issues and situations to take care of. Now you're going to deny this. You already have twice, but you've kind of achieved rock star status when it comes to what you do for a living, whether you want to say it or not, I'll say it for you. Are you pretty consistently like, you go out for dinner. Do you get hounded for autographs or selfies and things like that when you go to dinner, or go to the mall, stuff like that? I, I don't know what you, you would consider that to be, uh, hounded. I mean, there, there are people who are kind enough. I, I always feel like if somebody recognizes you from TV they've, they've watched, then uh, that, that's, that's a blessing. It's, it becomes a problem when, when, when no one's coming over to you and they're not watching. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. All right, you got me there. All right, I want to wrap this up with a little mini lightning round. I do this with all my guests. I'm just going to ask you a couple, you know, like a handful of random questions. Just give me a quick answer to the first thing that pops in your head. Ready? Yep. Favorite athlete you've covered? Hmm. Shannon Shope. Favorite non-sports related activity to do? Non-sports related? Yeah. Family time. Favorite city to visit? I've got a soft spot for Chicago and Denver. Uh, any place that I've I've lived in the past, like I was in Ann Arbor over the weekend uh, with my daughter. You know, I'd love to go back to Michigan. I'd love to go back to Denver where I lived. I'd love to go back to Chicago where I went to graduate school. So any place that I have I've lived and have had a history with, I love. What do you consider the best sports movie ever? Hoosiers. Great choice. What's your favorite song in your iPod or whatever music device you listen to? Like, what do you find yourself listening to the most? Whatever my daughter is listening to. <laughs> so, you know, we listen to a lot of the Disney channel. Okay. So uh, all those songs are really good. If you had never gotten involved in journalism or reporting in any type of capacity, what do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? Nothing that I would have enjoyed anywhere near the way I enjoy my job today, whatever it was, there's nothing that I could have ever done that would have br brought me the happiness and fulfillment that this does. All right. Second, last question. If Twitter sent you a note and said, Adam, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only, who would you follow and why? Wow. Uh, I, I'd probably just have to read the newspaper and not pay any attention to Twitter at all. I couldn't just follow one. Okay. Last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, any time, any era, dead I've, or alive. I've used, this, I've used this question before, right? So, I, I, you know, 
I, I would have my grandfather, uh, my poppy Dave, who passed away in 2002. Um, I think I would have John F. Kennedy. And I think I would have my other deceased grandfather, my father's father. So I'd have my mother's father, my father's father, and John F. Kennedy. Okay. Last thing, there's a bunch of Buffalo Bills fans are going to listen to this. Give Bills fans something to look forward to to 2018. Give them something that they're going to have to look forward to for this coming season. Well, they went to the playoffs last year, and they got a quarterback of the future to build around for future seasons. What could be better than that? True. All right, Adam, great stuff. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me to have someone like you come on and do my podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate you having me, and good luck to the Bills this season. All right, that was Adam Schefter. Now I'm joined by Bills writer from NewYorkUpstate.com, Ryan Talbot. Ryan, how you doing, man? What's going on? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. Got you on. I want to talk a couple Bills things today, and I want to start with the obvious. What Richie Incognito, he unretires this week. You know, something many people expected. I had Ross Tucker on not too long ago, and he bet me money that Richie was going to end up playing this year. So he wins. Anyway, the Bills end up releasing him, and now he's a free agent, able to sign anywhere he wants. Even before today's incident, which we'll talk about that, the TMZ report in a few minutes. What are your thoughts on him unretiring? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because here he, he goes and he, he agrees to restructure his contract, first of all, because it can't get done without his name on the dotted line, obviously. And he, and he sends out this tweet, Buffalo, so excited to be back for another year. And then this downward spiral occurs where you get a lot of inconsistent tweets from him, a lot of strange tweets, uh, firing his agent, obviously saying he's retiring, asking the bills to release him and then contacting the agency that he's already fired, supposedly. So there's something going on with him. And you don't want to assume, but after today's incident, which you, you've already mentioned there from TMZ, you, you have to wonder what is going on in terms of his, uh, from a mental aspect. Um, is it something with CTE? Is it something um, with, with the concussions that maybe we don't know about? But, you know, right now I'd say I'm not sure he can play again this year, no, even with the Bills releasing him. I'm not sure another team's going to want to take that risk. Uh, especially when things like this come out like they did today from TMZ. I agree with you, and you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I don't want to jump the gun. I've been really hard on him before, recently, in fact. I don't want to do that this time. I don't want to jump on him too much because maybe there is something going on that we don't know about right now. And you touched on it as well. It's just a bunch of very strange incidents. Like you said, he agreed to take a $1.7 million pay cut Soon after that, he fires his agent, which whatever, that happens all the time in sports, you know, but he did it on Twitter. That's, you don't do that. You, you don't fire your agent publicly on Twitter like that. And then furthermore, he tells the Buffalo News in April in an interview, he said that he was retiring because of his health. And he said, "My and this is a direct quote that was in the Buffalo News, my liver and kidneys are shutting down. The stress is killing me. Do you think these events have damaged his reputation in Buffalo? Because, I mean, let's face it, the guy was, he was a black eye on the sport. You know what I mean? After what happened in Miami and everything, he comes to Buffalo and he rejuvenates his career. He had three really good years here, at least two really good years. He was okay last year. You know, he probably could have left being thought of fondly by fans. But, and you know, after this all retirement, unretirement crap and all these strange incidents, 
I don't know, man. What do you think the fans are feeling about him now that he's gone? I think it leaves a bitter taste in a lot of their mouths because like you said, he came to Buffalo and he really did repair his image for the most part. Right. And I, I know he had that incident in the playoff game, supposedly, um, where although no one else could really back up uh, the Jaguars player there, but he, he really did repair his image. He had, like you said, three great years, two great years, however you want to say it. Um, consistent pro bowler, uh, and, and not that the Pro Bowl holds as much weight as it did 10, 20 years ago, but on the field, they, you could see that he was one of the Bills' best players on the offensive side of the ball, consistently opening up running lanes uh, very frequently, um, you know, keeping the quarterback clean. It, it, there were only a few games I can think of as an entire career with Buffalo where he ever struggled uh, once against the Eagles with Fletcher Cox, but I think that's uh, very common when people go against a guy like Fletcher Cox. Sure. So overall he played great. And like you said, he, he was, had this black eye. The bills took a chance on him. He, he really seemed to embrace Buffalo. The fans seemed to embrace him for the most part. And, and now the, all these incidents occur where, like you said, he, he kind of trolls the bills online. Um, you, you know, he was that guy that you really didn't know if you could take him seriously when he first fired his agents on Twitter, just because that's his kind of personality, kind of a goofy guy. Uh, that's what you kind of get from him on social media. But then with back and forth with trolling the bills, uh, you could see some fans were getting a little bit disgusted with every tweet that followed after that. So it's unfortunate, but I think more fans are going to turn, you know, uh, think of him on, on a negative note rather than look at those three years where he played at a very high level. I agree. I think these last handful of months have kind of uh, degraded what he did here over the last couple of years before that. And we did touch on that TMZ report. Apparently he threw a dumbbell at someone in Florida. It was just, you know, freaking out, spazzing out. And he's being held for psychiatric evaluation involuntarily right now. You have to wonder, I mean, even if he does, given everything that's happened, even if there's nothing mentally wrong with him. And again, I don't want to speculate. You're not going to speculate. We don't know that at all. So it would be very irresponsible for us to do that. But He's going to, he might have a hard time catching on somewhere, at least anytime soon. And if he does, I highly doubt it's going to be a contract that would have paid him as much as he would have made in Buffalo this year, even with the pay cut. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one, uh, if he gets that clean bill of health, like you said, he would have to probably wait for an injury to occur somewhere. Um, You're probably talking about a team that would be saying that they're a playoff contender and, and they need a guy like that to come in because they lose someone in season. Uh, and you're probably saying maybe vet minimum um, because they don't want to take that risk. You don't want to give him a lot of guaranteed money um, based on how he's acted here in these last few months. You know, the, the one thing I'll say is I, I hope he gets that clean bill of health. I hope that everything ends up being okay for him. Uh, and, and maybe that this incident, um, may, maybe he, he moves on from it. Maybe it's not what it seems because who knows? I'm sure in this day and age, there will be video of of whatever happened in that gym that gets released sooner rather than later. So I I just hope that he can move on, whether it's in the NFL or whether it's just post-career and kind of, you know, stay healthy and lead a positive life more than anything else. All right. So the Bills have moved on from Richie and they moved on before the incident today. They gave him his release. They're done with him. Now we're talking about on the field stuff. Starting tomorrow, or actually today on Thursday, we have OTAs going on. What are a couple things that you have your eyes on the closest, more than anything else? Well, offensive line, and that's not just because of incognito. I mean, they 
Now that Cordy Glenn was a major contributor last year due to injuries, but he was traded away. Eric Wood, he's, although he's still on the roster, is technically retired. And then Richie Incognito, they, they parted ways with him. So you have a lot of moving pieces there. So Deion Dawkins, obviously, is going to be at left tackle. Uh, I, I think they're going to try to keep as much of the line consistent as possible. I think that Mills will have to battle for the job at right tackle with new um, with Newhouse. And, and obviously... I think they're going to try to keep Ducasse at right guard. But then you have those two other spots there at left guard and at center. And can John Miller reclaim? Um, can he stay healthy? I guess that was his biggest issue last year. Is he had a reoccurring ankle issue. Sure. And he played very well in his second season. So I was actually looking for him to win that right guard job last year over Ducasse and keep building off of, of his play because I thought he was very good as in his second season. Uh, and I think pro football focus had him as like their most improved uh, second year guard compared to anyone else in the league that year uh, at center, you know, is Ryan Groy really going to get that shot? Are they going to just say, well, we really value the guy's versatility. So maybe he's that utility guy that can come off the bench and play guard or center. Uh, I, I, I have some issues or, or reservations, I guess would be the best thing to say about Ru- uh, Russell Bodine after talking to some guys that covered him in Cincinnati, but maybe this offense uh, will be a better fit for him. You never know when, when guys change offenses, uh, maybe they land in a place where it is a better fit. So offensive line, that's one thing that I'm really looking at. Uh, obviously you want to follow some of the rookies, Tremaine Edmonds. I, I mean, I thought the bills got exceptional value for him at number 16. He's a day one starter in my opinion. So I'm really excited to see what he brings to the table. Um, and, and then at cornerback too, just because I know that the bills obviously uh, hit it big last year with Trey white. And I like Vontae Davis in terms of what he's done in his career, but he had that reoccurring groin issue last year. So uh, you, you wonder about the depth behind those, those two. And obviously the nickel cornerback, they brought in Philip Gaines. They obviously drafted Taron Johnson. Those two will probably fight for that job. But I, I'm looking at two of the undrafted free agents that the Bills uh, brought in, Ryan Carter uh, out of Clemson and Levi Wallace out of Alabama. I think both of those guys have a legitimate shot of making the 53-man roster. You know, one rookie, too, that you didn't mention that I have my eyes on and I really like a lot is Wyatt Teller. I think he has a legitimate chance to win that starting guard job. I really do. Especially, like you said, if Ryan Groy, he might be a swing like center guard, you know, like he's been before, or maybe he takes the starting job from what I'm one way or the other. But I think Wyatt Teller, if he could have a good camp, I think, you know, I mean, they're only going to be in shorts right now, so you can't tell much now. But I think this is a guy to look out for this summer. I think he's a guy, he could push for a starting spot. At least I think he can. I like him a lot. I think that's definitely a possibility just because, again, the Bills don't have set starters or a set starter at left guard right now. I think they that was another guy that they had really good value. And I I considered him a a late day two pick. So I I thought he was going to end up going uh, around three. A lot of experience there. I think he improved every year that he played. So he's a guy that if he doesn't start this season, I think you'll at least see him get more snaps as the season goes on. How are you feeling about the wide receiver position right now? I mean, it's not something that they address much during the offseason. They signed Jeremy Curley. You know, they drafted Austin Pro and Ray Ray McLeod this round before him, but not a lot done at that position right now. So how are you feeling going into OTAs? Well, going into OTAs, I would say that's probably their greatest weakness on this roster. I don't think they're done by any means. You know, Brendan Bean even mentioned, you know, last year you saw guys 
get caught leading up to the season or get released by other teams. And they could be guys like that could be in play for Buffalo. Um, you know, originally when Des Bryant was released, there was a lot of chatter that maybe the bills would be interested there, but to this point they haven't shown any, but I, I do think they're still going to bring in another veteran or two before this regular season. But right now, you know, it, it's an interesting group just because you don't know who's going to step up from this group. Yes, you, you have Kelvin Benjamin, Zay Jones, and Jeremy Curley. That's your likely top three. But then after that, you know, they, they brought back Kalen Clay because they liked the way that he could stretch the field last year. Uh, Rod Streeter was one of the best stories last year in training camp. So maybe he can kind of um, turn back the clock to last year and, and play the same type of way and hopefully stay healthy. And maybe he can uh, earn a spot there. Brendan Riley was that guy that the fan base wanted to see all season make the 53-man roster. Yeah. And when they called him up, he really didn't play at, at all. So th- there's a lot of those type of players. There's, there's guys that they brought up last year that they, they had on the practice squad. They brought up like Malachi Dupree, um, a lot of just unknowns. So it'll be interesting to see if any of those unknowns can actually step up here, uh, OTAs and obviously in training camp and earn a spot on this roster. So we spend time talking about the offensive line and we spend time talking about the wide receivers, which kind of leads into a point that I'm going to make care concerning the quarterback, which I know we're going to talk about now and specifically with Josh Allen. See, this is my biggest concern with Josh Allen right now, especially if he ends up playing as a rookie. I'm not scared that he's a rookie. I'm not scared about his college accuracy, although, you know, I'm not, I don't like it. I wish it was better, but scared off by his footwork or any of that stuff. What scares me most about Josh Allen as a rookie with in Buffalo is the offensive line and the wide receiver positions. Because, I mean, those are easily the two biggest question marks on the team right now. And, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, the two most important components to a quarterback being successful in the NFL are his wide receivers and the offensive line. That's a very iffy position right now. So that makes me even more leery than I was before to potentially have Josh Allen start as a rookie. Yeah, I think you make a valid point there. Um, you want to obviously have a rookie cor- quarterback that has a lot of time to make his reads. Um, he does get the ball out quickly in terms of what we've seen from him in college. But at the same time, the NFL is a whole nother animal in itself. And if you're missing you know, three guys that over the years have contributed, to, again, Glenn Wood and Incognito, and Dawkins obviously takes Glenn's spot, but you still have those two spots that aren't going to be easy to replace. And you have, you have to worry that, you know, he's going to see consistent pressure possibly and make no mistake, Josh Allen, AJ McCarron, Nathan Peterman, none of these guys are Tyrod Taylor. If there's one thing that Tyrod Taylor could do is avoid that pressure, get out of the pocket, avoid sacks. So if you have Allen back there, He's going to take a lot of sacks, you would think. Same with McCarron and Peterman, obviously. But you don't want to shell shock your quarterback as a rookie like that. I, I really think years ago, that's what happened to Carr in, in with the Houston Texans. I think that he actually, uh, if they would have sat him or if they would have improved that line or given him more to work with, I really think that he could have been a, a very good NFL quarterback. And you just don't want to see Allen, who again, has some flaws there, like you said, with accuracy, come into a situation where he has a line where he can't make his reads and he has wide receivers that can't create separation. And yeah, he can anticipate better um, than, than a guy like Tyrod Taylor, who kind of waited to see his guys get open. But at the same time, you would like to see them bring in someone that can get open on a consistent basis that can make life easier for for a rookie quarterback. I agree. And I'm glad you brought up Tyrod because 
you know, I've talked about it a couple times on this show. I think even Bills fans who really hated Tyrod, well, maybe hate's a strong word, who didn't like him, I think they're going to learn to appreciate him this year because, you know, this offensive line, it, it's probably not going to be as good as it was last year. And it wasn't that good last year. He made them look a lot better than they were with his feet, more often than not. And sure, listen, we're not going to get into any kind of Tyrod debate. That's, you know, that's old news now. We're not going to talk about his passing prowess and stuff like that. But one thing that's undeniable is he made that offensive line look better than they were sometimes by being able to escape pressure. Because if that would have been most quarterbacks, there would have been the sack total would have been much, much higher. Oh, absolutely. There were plays last year where he, uh, play action fake maybe. And as soon as he, he had the ball in his hands to throw, there's a guy in the backfield and all he had to do is spin away. That's not going to work with this group of quarterbacks. Now, Allen might be able to use his physical strength to, to kind of break away from the guy or even plow over the player. Um, but you don't want to see that on a consistent basis. You know, AJ McCarron, Nathan Peterman, you hope that one of them step up enough in OTAs and in training camp where the bills can ease Allen along. Yeah, there will be some people that will want to see him from week one, but I, I think the Bills would be pretty happy if maybe they didn't have to call his name or put him into the lineup until after the bye week. Uh, uh, then he'll have plenty of experience in this offense, so you should be pretty comfortable with it. Uh, I, I would like to see that as more of a timeline for Allen and rather than try to rush him out there week one. If he wins the job, so be it. But at the same time, let the guy learn. Let him learn all the nuances of this offense. Let him even see how the other quarterbacks handle things on the field, whether it's it's calling audibles at the line, whether it's how they utilize LaShawn McCoy, um, learning the blocking scheme. You know, those are things that you can pick up when you're on the sidelines that he's not going to necessarily get to see or, or understand if he's thrown in there week one. Let me ask you one more question here. My Monday partner, Tone Pucks, we do our Pat with Pucks segment. He is 1000% convinced, and I think he's wrong, but... He thinks that Nate Peterman has as good of a chance to start week one at quarterback as either A.J. McCarron or Josh Allen. Again, I think he's nuts, but he did present some good points. Do you think there's any realistic chance at all that Nate Peterman potentially could be your week one starter? Yeah, I wouldn't close the door on it, I guess is what I would say. I'm not listing him as the favorite by any means. But at the same time, the, the Bills obviously liked what they saw from him in practice last year to the point where they benched Tyrod Taylor uh, leading up to that Chargers game and put him in the lineup, which ended up being a horrific decision, obviously. But they must like what he's doing. Um, you, you know, there have been some pictures um, released this week from the OTA practices early on in the week. It looks like he's built some muscle onto his frame. I know he did a lot of training uh, after the season was over. So I, I wouldn't say that he has no shot. I, I still think that they brought in McCarron telling him that he'd have a legit chance to win the job. Obviously, if, if Allen is the best of the three throughout training camp in the preseason, they're going to go with their first round pick to, to kind of pat themselves on the back, perhaps, and say, you know, we look pretty smart now. Here's this guy. He's looking good. Uh, there are some questions about him, but Right now, there there is no favorite for the starting job. I, I can't say that Allen's the favorite, McCarron's the favorite, or Peterman. It, it's just going to be wild, and it's going to be one of the more, more fun things to watch in OTAs, uh, in training camp, and obviously in the preseason to see how all three of them fare. You know, I think Phil's fans should be happy, even if they're not a pro Josh Allen guy. And what I mean is this. They ended up getting him, for the most part, considering they moved up at a pretty bargain price. 
You know what I mean? They didn't give up their other first round pick. They didn't give up anything for 2019. And, you know, I talked to Adam earlier in this show and he thinks that, the you know, he thought that Josh Allen might be the number one pick of the draft for a lot of the year. That's what he was told by people. He's a special talent. He just has, you know, he's got to put it together. And of course, that's a question. Will he put it together? But my point is, it feels like it was such a low risk considering, I mean, they traded guys to get the ammunition, but to only give up what they gave up, they didn't give up anything for 2019. And they ended up getting Tremaine Edmonds because of the tie rod trade. I think Bills fans that are only lukewarm on uh, Josh Allen right now, give him a, get the guy a chance and know that you didn't give up the farm to get him because it could have worked out that they had to go up to four or five to get him. And then we were talking a lot more than what they gave up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being kind of acknowledged that if he would have made that trade with Denver, there would have been a, uh, their, their other first round pick would have been gone in the 2018 draft. Uh, there, there were situations where they could have lost 2019 picks. So they're set for next year. They have every one of their draft picks still. And, and at the end of the day, Bills fans have been clamoring for a franchise quarterback for since Jim Kelly's retired in terms of a long term. Cause you know, you had Bledsoe for a few years. You had Tyrod who some argued was or was not, but if, if they hit on Allen, the, the Bills franchise is set for the next decade plus. Uh, all you can ask for is your team to take a shot. And, and that's what they did. They finally took a shot. They moved into the top 10 to get someone that they thought could be their franchise QB. So like you said, give him a chance, give him time and see if he can put that, put it all together because he is a special talent in terms of raw ability, in terms of arm strength. So there's a lot to like about him. It's just, can they end up putting the, you know, the pieces of the puzzle together? I'm starting to come around on him too. I agree. All right, Ryan, thanks for your time. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Talbot Bills. He does excellent work running for the Bills at NewYorkUpstate.com. Ryan, I'll tell you what, man, I'll get you back on the show soon and we'll spend more time talking Bills, getting to know you a little bit, things like that. Appreciate your time tonight. Hey, thanks again. All right, that'll wrap up this episode. One more time. Big thank you to Adam Schefter from ESPN for joining the podcast. means a great deal to me. I also want to thank Ryan Talbot from UpstateNewYork.com for jumping on and talking a little Buffalo Bills football. Of course, most of all, like always, thank you for listening. I never take for granted people spending part of their day listening to this podcast, so I really, really appreciate all of you listening. Coming up on Monday's show, I have another great guest. I'll be joined by Sports Illustrated senior writer, Jenny Rentis will be my special guest on Monday. I'll also have my buddy Tone Pucks for our weekly Pat with Puck segment, and we'll be talking all kinds of sports and pop culture stuff. If you haven't done so already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. Subscribe, be kind enough to leave a five-star review and all that fun stuff. If it's not Apple Podcasts, go to wherever you get your podcast from and subscribe. Basically, this show's everywhere at this point. You can also follow me on Twitter at PadMoranTweets. Have a great, safe Memorial Day holiday weekend. And I'll talk to you all again on Monday. You guys are the best.